listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian by Seth Andrews. It was first broadcast live on the 8th of October 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Good morning, good afternoon, or evening, wherever and whenever you may be. My name is Brian Ego, and this is Skeptics in the Pub Online. I do also need to give a quick content warning um, for tonight's talk. We're not exactly sure where the conversation is going to go, but more than likely it's going to delve into topics such as homophobia, racism, sexual harassment, gun violence, war, the death penalty, and if things get really dark, we might even talk a little bit about contemporary Christian music. So our guest for this evening is not just any old former Fox News Christian. We've managed to land a behemoth of atheist podcasting and YouTubing. And he's also an author. We're on book number three now. Book number one was Deconverted, followed by Sacred Cows. And now we have Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian, the best type of Fox News Christian. He is the incredibly gravelly voice of the Thinking Atheist podcast. Please go wild in the text chat for Seth Andrews. Seth, welcome to Skeptics in the Pub Online. I can't live up to that introduction. I mean, you made me sound like uh, like a, a Greek god or something. I man, that's amazing. You know, so I'd, I'd like. In fact, you know what? I'm going to take that last thirty seconds and make it my ringtone on my cell phone, so I can just hear it all the time. No, it's an honor to be here, my friend. Thanks for joining us. And now I'm off script and it's all going to fall to pieces. But uh, let's get stuck straight in, Seth. Okay, so we Skeptics in the Pub Online have got a, a reputation for asking the hard questions. And we're going to go straight in with the hard ones. Can we see your dogs? I, I'd, they'll probably pop up here during the interview. They are downstairs. We had uh, Natalie's parents stopped by for like an unannounced socially distanced visit. I think they're like out almost outside <laughs> so they're talking to the but the dogs are down with her but uh, they tend to like to walk up the stairs into my office at the uh, at the most uh, inopportune times and so if that happens I'll hold them up like Simba from the Lion King so that everyone can see the animals but they're doing well thanks for asking please do wandering canines always welcome oh, okay yeah. so let's move on to uh, I guess delve into your book a little bit Seth um we love a redemption story here, belatedly welcome to the good side of the force. But many um, current Fox News Christians are going to look at that latest book of yours and maybe just think you're a typical angry atheist lashing out at people's beliefs. So what prompted you to write a book on such a, should we say, specific subject? And are you just, just having a go at them for fun? Well, I'm a little bit of, uh, at a loss. I don't know how much Fox News bleeds into your part of the world. You probably see it through glass, like, you know, you, you see the network that is popular here. You Do you approach it the way we would approach, say, um, you know, the BBC or Sky News? Do you have a Fox News in your part of the world? Um, I, I don't think we have a direct equivalent. Yeah. Um, you know, the BBC is much more um, straight laced, shall we say, than Fox. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't mean in terms some... of content, but uh, it's not a major, it's known quantity. You know, like uh, we get our Fox News for those 
who may not be hugely familiar began back in the mid 90s and is a calling it a news network is a real stretch because it is essentially the propaganda wing of the Republican Party in the United States. If you look at the people who populate this channel, they are largely right-wing evangelical Republicans who are doing editorial content masquerading as news. And it's been an interesting thing to watch in the United States over the last 25 years because you know this nation 70 plus percent of americans profess some kind of christianity and fox news has deftly tapped into this by marrying together this notion that we are a united states under god we're anointed by god to be superior with god superior we're number 1 you know this goes far beyond like home team Raw, raw, you know, kind of stuff into a an alarming type of nationalism that I think damages all of us. Fox News is all about these messages of Judeo-Christian ownership of the country and how we everybody should be Christian and criticizing Christians equates to an attack, persecution, and they pound at that drum all day long. And so now here in my my country, we've got this whole culture of millions of Fox News viewers that are primed just to freak out about anybody who is not like them. And I used to be that guy. I used to, you know, walk around enjoying a tremendously privileged life whilst at at the same time thinking that I was under attack. You know, they're coming to take away everything that I hold dear. They want to kill God, you know. And Fox News, they it fuels that right-wing radio in this country. A guy named Rush Limbaugh, another guy named Michael Savage, they fuel this culture of paranoia, fear, persecution, and Christian nationalism. And so now that I'm on the other side, now that I've rejected religion and had to go back and reevaluate well, what do I think about all these issues that are going on in my country, in the world? How do I see it now that I'm no longer religious? I began to examine, well, how how was I a part of that culture? What primed my thinking? What was I right about? What was I wrong about? And I decided to hammer all of this into about a 60,000-word book called Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian. And it gets into a lot of different subjects relating to the culture. But to forgive the long answer, that's what happens when you invite a radio host to to come on your show. It's I just blather on. I hope I answered your question. Making my job easy. Well, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I guess television is, you know, in many ways viewed as harmless. But the influence it has, um, you know, particularly on the voting population is is going to be problematic, right? So, um, you know, as as skeptics, we we always like to ask the question, what's the harm, right? And you you know, you've laid out the fact that they've got influence, but you know, the the book goes into a, a fair amount of detail on um, you know, th- those issues that I kind of mentioned in the content warning. Like, there's a there's a, such a close link with 
um, the, 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 the anti-immigrant sentiment, um, the, the, the gun culture, which is, is a big problem across in the States as well. So, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to picture the young Seth Andrews sort of being on, on board with all of that. Can you maybe just, like, um, give us a mental picture of, like, the Andrews household circa 1990-whenever, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> you and your parents and, I don't know, siblings, whatever, like, sitting around, oh, you know, huddling around the television um, to watch Fox? Is that is that how things worked out in your household? It was, you know, Fox News, I, I, in my book, talked a little bit about how American evangelical conservatives get their information about the world. And there are trends, certainly exceptions to the rule, but the trends show that evangelical Christians, certainly Donald Trump supporters, tend to get their news about the world from a single news source, Fox News, while non-conservatives are more inclined to get their news about the world from a variety of different news sources, media, and even local news. They're sampling more at the buffet of news to try to find out what's going on, multiple perspectives. So when I was a Fox News Christian, though, I had become convinced that Fox was a better arbiter of truth than everybody else. They were lying. This was all part of, you know, almost even a satanic agenda. You know, the CNN and the New York Times and all of these other outlets, anybody quote unquote liberal, I had othered them to the point where I was immediately distrustful and I would discount their point of view based on their political affiliation or their network affiliation. And Fox News cultivates this. In fact, if you see how they brand the news channel, they say it's fair and balanced and they've trademarked that slogan. It's a brilliant marketing move because the implication is, is that everybody else is unfair and imbalanced. And I was in this conduit, this narrow tunnel, and uh, it was primed by my upbringing. It was primed by Christian nationalism. I was trained, even when I was in private Christian school. They dressed us in our uniforms, which were the colors of the American flag. And we saluted. We saluted the American flag. We saluted the Christian flag. We saluted the Bible. And we were charged to rise up, grow up, engage the culture, and help make us again, quote unquote, again, a Christian Nation. So, I mean, I was a Christian nationalist from when I was in junior high school, when I was in my early grades. I was sort of programmed to, to think that. And so when Fox News reinforces the thinking that's already there, we just have it on in the background all the time. And this continues. I could go see my mother and father today. I guarantee you Fox News is just rolling in the background. It's almost like another resident in their home kind of thing. But I read uh, the books of Ann Coulter, who is a toxic right-wing propagandist and a hateful human being. I used to, I used to read her, uh, Rush Limbaugh. You know, he's this guy who's pounding at his sort of radio pulpit all the time. He's a climate change denier, and and he's always race baiting non-whites. And you know, he's uh, just on and on. It's it's a reinforcement culture. It took me a long time to sort of open the window peek outside and go, hey, wait a minute, you know, what What other people have other ideas for other reasons? And to be genuinely curious enough to step out of the cocoon. And it's amazing 
how your world opens up when you do that. You know, you when you are introduced to other ideas and you're not afraid of them or you're not being judgmental against them, but you start at a moment of genuine empathy and curiosity and you say, well, what's that about? I, as it happened with religion. Like if once I stepped out of Christianity and said, well, what, what's all this other stuff about? What's non-belief in religion about? And I wasn't being pious and judgmental and panicky. Uh, I gen- it, it, it literally expanded my whole world. I discovered a world that never before existed. And that was a long journey. I had to let go of my religious, my Christian nationalist beliefs before I could get out of sort of my philosophical and values uh, beliefs about the world. So, um, I mean, first up, I'm sure we'd love to see a picture of young Seth in his weird red, white, and blue school uniform. Oh, there's um, one. I, I've, shown it. I've shown oh, yeah. it. I showed it at a speech I did a few years ago in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you should see me. I mean, I look like a little televangelist. You know, my hair's perfectly coiffed, parted on the side. I'm in a, I'm in a shirt and tie. And the clip-on tie is actually adorned with tiny American flags all over it. I look like, I mean, it's very, I, I don't know, it, it's its alarmingly nationalist, like, you know, dear leader type nationalism, <laughs> you know, but it was normal at the time because everybody was doing it. Um, so, but, you know, they prime us early and, and then they tell us, well, you're better, you're better than everybody. The United States is number one. We're number one. We, we're the greatest. And they don't ever tell us why we're the greatest. They never encourage us to check it out, find the metrics that determine we're the greatest. We're just the greatest by, by default, by declaration. And that's alarming to me, too. You know, when, when did it become meritorious to, to just decide because we say we're great, that we're great? And then more alarmingly, to look at our allies and friends and free nations and wonderful people all around the world and other them. You know, there's a xenophobic kind of thing that's happening in the United States that I find just tragic. You know, why in the world do I have to lessen someone else to feel better about ourselves? And shouldn't we go out and not forge our transcripts, but try to be the best version of ourselves? I wrote it in the book. You probably saw this. There's a chapter called We're Number One. It gets into Christian nationalism and this sort of idea that we're superior. So I'm like, all right, well, statistics in that uh, yeah. chapter. Like, yeah. what metric is that? Okay, wait, is it violent crime? No, we're not close to number. Uh, being more peaceful, is it cost of living? Is it healthcare? Is it the size of our military? Is it all these other metrics? I mean, the only we come in at number one in terms of sheer power and national pride, which means we're number one at telling people we're number one. But in almost all other meaningful metric, other nations, you know, we see uh, the UK, we see uh, uh, not that you know what I mean when I say the UK, but Canada, we see um, uh, New Zealand, we see Singapore, Switzerland, you know, they're near or at the top of the list in all these meaningful categories. And we here in the United States seem to be falling away. And there's a culture of people who are now seem to be overcompensating. Because now if you challenge that, they think you're a heretic and a traitor against your own country. And, uh, you know, I don't want to live in a country that that prides itself on lying to itself. I think we need to be honest about the reality, the situation that we're in. And 
Yeah, um, and sorry to burst another bubble of yours as well, Seth. I saw you were snaffling some Reese's chocolate before we went live. Um, <laughs> American candy sucks balls. Oh, like, oh, time. Yeah. it's the fucking worst. <laughs> we realize that. You, I will not argue with you. You you've got better chocolates for sure. I will I will say that outright. The Swiss do already not the you're, not, you're not any okay. of those twisted people who put mayonnaise on French fries, are you? Oh, you, I heard you talking about this the other day. Um, occasionally mayonnaise, French fries, but um, vinegar on French fries is pretty common over here too. Oh. It sounds weird. Once you do it, you'll never turn back, my friend. We went I'll to a restaurant. Not to digress too much. We went to a restaurant in London. We were there a couple of years ago. Where they did a, you guys do a lot of baked fish. It was one of the greatest things in the universe. Uh, it was absolutely, you guys do your fish and chips and it's, how do we get that here? Because our fish and chips is just terrifying. <laughs> yeah, this, the secret is deep frying, you know. You're listening to Food Chat with Seth and Brian here. Okay, <laughs> Seth, I wanted to rewind a little bit. So I, if I was doing a quick fire interview with young Seth, okay, yeah. just yeah. imagine that. Okay, young Seth, abortion, yes or no? No. Um, homosexuality, yes or no? No. Well, with a caveat. I had to abridge that in the mid '90s when my own best friend came out as gay. So I started to bend a little bit to accommodate, but I still felt it was sinful and not God's will. We'll come back to that. Put a pen in that. We'll come back to that later yeah. on. Okay, young Seth, guns, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Immigrants, yes or no? I was, you know, I didn't know much about the world. And I tended to not to give a, a long answer, but I, I just didn't think about it. Like the United States was my world. So I don't felt I wasn't really anti-immigrant, but, but I had that tragic notion that, well, the U S is the world. And if it's happening elsewhere, it's not really my problem. Kind of thing. That's, that, that's not necessarily, a um, an uncommon sentiment to have. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, I don't think, I, I mean, you you can be a little bit, I guess, callous about it, but I don't think that's that unique to um, to Christianity. Well, you know, one of the things in the book that I, I think a line in the book that just struck me the most was that you said you're ashamed of how callous you were when you were younger. Um, and, and, you know, I have many regrets of my youth as well, not based on religion, but just other dumb stuff that I had growing up. So, um you know, how much of that can you put down to the sort of angry exuberance of youth versus the, the sort of influences that were happening around you? There's probably a, a number of different factors. Some of that, I, we all remember the confidence of youth. Yeah, when I was a teenager, you couldn't tell me anything. I was cocky and I, you know, I knew it all and I applied this to almost every area of my life. No, I, I had no clue as to how ignorant I really was. You know, I was as young and invincible. I was going to live forever. And I knew everything kind of thing. And as you age, you get the seasoning of age. You begin to know how much you do not know. And you are, you know, you are taught humility through time and the years and experience. There's some of that, I think, that that it has happened in my own life. But I also think leaving religion, you know, religions, fundamentalist religions start you with the answer with a capital A. 
Here's your answer. This is it. And then they will tell you, now go out and you can ask all the questions you want. But the answer is still this. Well, that's not an honest approach to the world. And, uh, you know, they do this with political parties. They do this with their philosophies. You know, um, this is how you think. Now, go ahead. Go ahead. Ask all the questions you want. But if you come back with an answer other than what we've already prescribed, you did it wrong. You're misguided. You're brainwashed. You're broken. You're just confused. It's a rigged game. You I need to uh, pray a bit more. It's a you know, it's it's. I was telling. I, I interviewed with a a believer, a God believer, earlier today, this morning, and it was interesting because I was encouraging him, like you know, to be able to to take the journey without necessarily knowing where it's going to take you, to be able to follow the breadcrumbs, follow the evidence, and say, well, what makes sense, and what does the data say, and and then what is reasonable to accept. That's a liberating and wonderful place to be. It opens your whole world up. And then also to be prepared to change your mind if that information is updated in some way or corrected. I mean, this is how science works. Some people criticize science and the scientific process because sometimes it changes. I think, well, that's not a bug. It's a feature, right? Religions don't change their minds. They say, well, this is the fundamental truth and it is concrete. To be able to update and improve whenever you find a better idea, I think that means a better life. You know, so, so I hope I that, remotely answered your question. There. You, you did, that. you did, okay. and like the, I guess the liberating nature is an, an, an interesting one to toy with, right? Because uh, I think that's maybe true in some respects, but are there not, you know, many like people who are heavily religious and brought up as young children to fear uh, the burning, burning fires of hell? Uh, and and therefore, any attempt to step away from that path is going to give them a lot of um, you know psychological uh, problems, is it not? Yeah. Did you have to? Did you let, let let's interview young Seth Andrews again? Uh, do you believe in hell, and is it scary? Yes, absolutely. A literal hell, uh, fire and torture, and I hadn't. I mean, I never stopped to. Let me back up. I was operating in regard to hell, the way I was trained to operate with the atrocities of Yahweh in the Old Testament. God is all-powerful, and he runs the show, and he has the right to take life, even to the tune of hundreds of thousands of of lives. God gets to be jealous because there's no one as great as God. God can make the rules. God takes and gives and takes and gives at his whim, and that's okay because he's God and he's perfect, and that's what a just God does. And so I never, I put hell in that same category. You know, God implements hell, but God has the right to do that. And if God thinks it is the appropriate response to the sinner, well, that's God's call. It was, there's an authoritarian angle to much of this, and we see this in the way many evangelicals respond to their leaders, including the current president of the United States, an allegiance, an unthinking allegiance to an authoritarian prophet, God, savior figure, where they just line up and follow. Well, you know, if if this is an authority with a capital A put in place, I will lead, I will follow. That's a leader that has been appointed, anointed, and my job is to line up and reinforce that. You know, I'm in God's army. 
And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I held to a literal hellfire and damnation. And uh, my parents, especially my father, hold to that hellfire today. And they think I'm going there and they're terrified that I won't repent before I die. It, it, it's, it's such a tough one. Um, yeah. I, I've got a young daughter and maybe if she misbehaves, she may get put on the naughty step, right? Yeah. But if that naughty step was on fire forever, um, doesn't make me a good parent, I don't think. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it seems to me, I, I, would, I would classify that as a form of child abuse. And I know no, I, you're right. it's, a, it's a strong term. And this is my you, you opinion, and I agree. personally, not and, the opinion you know, of skeptics in the pub online. Hell is a, a brilliant mechanism for keeping people in line and from asking questions. I mean, it's brilliant. Like if I want to control you, I threaten you. You know, if you step out, if you, you know, decide that you have doubts or admit that you know you have enough doubts to leave the fold, then you will be tortured for it. It's a brilliant mechanism for control. We've seen religions do it. We've seen governments do it. This sort of mortal threat is uh, it's a tool that has been used to keep people from thinking and acting with their own agency. And uh, that's another reason I oppose it. And I don't think any worthy God would ever implement an unthinking approach to their doctrine or mission or dogma or whatever. So young Seth would have thought that there was literally somebody looking over his shoulder anytime he was going to do something wrong. It's, and I was a young person. Like a uh, I was a young person during a time known around the world, but especially in the United States as the satanic panic. The mm-hmm. 1980s and mid 1990s were, was a time when um, we were looking under every rock thinking the devil was hiding. And there was this moral panic going on nationally uh, where they we were told that the devil is in the music that our kids are listening to. It's in our holidays. It's in the toys and Saturday morning cartoons they are watching. It's in the one political party. It's everywhere. Everything is satanic. We it was a panicked time. So, you know, talk about fear. It was a, a time, you know, I, I'd like to say. And it, it's hard because I know there's a lot of love in Christianity. There are a lot of loving people. There are a lot of love verses. There are a lot of loving things that churches do for their communities. But if you peel back the love talk, Christianity is at its core a fear cult. Because at the end of the day, you are told to believe and love God under threat of damnation or annihilation. and. Christians can't walk away from that. It, it, there's all this love window dressing all over the rest of it, but at, the, at its core, it's love me or I'll burn you. And that, in my opinion, makes it a fear cult. For sure. Um, okay, we put a pin in earlier, and I want to come back to it, Seth. So, um, I, you know, you you mentioned that, you know, your your best friend came out to you. And, and I've also heard you mention on your show that you know, nine eleven was was you know a big event that really made you start questioning, right? So, let let's play a little thought experiment. Let's say nine eleven never happened. Let's say your your best friend instead of coming out gay, he comes out super hetero. You know, he's just going for it with the <laughs> ladies. All right, so so you you don't 
you don't have that direct confrontation. Because like, I find like that direct confrontation, the cognitive dissonance that it triggers is a great way of getting people to think. So what if those things never happened? Would would you not be sitting right in front of me now, Seth? Or do you think do you think that we would have got to you eventually? It's hard to say. That's an interesting question. Never heard that one before. I I think, you know, sometimes I find we apologize when someone someone will look to us and see that we came out of a fundamentalist faith and we're now an atheist, and they'll be like, well, something must have happened to you. And we knee-jerk, and we say, well, oh, no, I came to this on my own volition. And no, no, I'm not here. Meaning that we we tend to resist this notion that a cage-rattling event may have caused us to alter course. I've stopped apologizing for that. Because the truth is, I think when my best friend came out to me as gay, and I realized a year later that I was, I was the problem and he wasn't the problem, it forced me to divorce myself from a fundamental tenet of my religion. I, I had to make a moral decision outside of the supposed good book. And, you know, after 9-11, when everybody's invoking God, the, the Islamist extremists, the terrorists were invoking God. Everybody's invoking God. You know, it, I, I do I do want to think that I, I would have been curious enough to follow all of the other doubts and questions that I had had. I think some of it may have to do with midlife. You come to an age when pleasing other people, keeping the peace, not making waves, you're old enough where you're like, ah, screw that. <laughs> you know, I'm not here to make you comfortable. There were, I, I'd like to think that existed anyway. But there is no doubt that those marker events really, really did start to change my thinking. And I'm thankful for them in that way. They made me uncomfortable at the time. But, you know, sometimes when you're uncomfortable and your cage has been rattled, and you are forced to look at something again, and you have to navigate through the, you know, the fog of war and come out the other side. You know, sometimes that's a, that's when minds are changed and lives are improved. So uh, I'd like to think I'd have gotten there, but you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade those doubts, those opportunities. I mean, I'm, I'm the tragedy of 9/11. Obviously, I wish it had never happened. But one tiny silver lining is that it. It did force me to start to reverse engineer all the God speak to see that it was just a cause and effect action. And these were people who were invoking their gods for their own purposes. Yeah. So, okay. So, like, no, we don't want another 9 11. Um, that's fine. We could do with more gay people befriending Christians, though, you know? <laughs> could, could we add that to the gay agenda, please? That would be, that would be great. I wrote a chapter called The Gay Agenda. And I, you know what? It's amazing to me how freaked out I was about gay people. I was just, I was creeped out. I was a homophobic, uh, homophobic person because I, I didn't relate to an attraction, a same-sex attraction. And so I just decided, well, that's got to be the, the norm for everybody else, right? It, well, this is what I am. It's what everybody else is supposed to be. And uh, now I take the position that, look, if, if you're in a hetero relationship, and you're threatened by somebody else's homosexuality, then it's possible you or your partner is gay. <laughs> you should probably explore that. Sure. So, 
Okay, uh, Seth, let's pivot a little bit. I want to ask about radio presenter, Seth, um, on a, a Christian radio station, presumably one of those weird American ones that's just got four letters, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So w- what was the atmosphere like in the in the studio with, with other employees? Were they all like drinking the Christian Kool-Aid? Were some of them phoning it in? Most radio DJs have got huge cocaine habits. Was there any of that going on at <laughs> <in> your station? <laughs> well, my station, at my, my first major radio job, which I was with for 10 years, KXOJ, it was a family-owned station. And it was we drank the Kool-Aid. I didn't see anybody on the air, really, who wasn't a devout believer. I'm thinking of one, two. I, I can think of three of them offhand right now who are no longer radio announcers, and they're pastors. They're full-time pastors. Um, and we were, we were, we really believed that we were doing God's good work. When I changed jobs, I went to a large, there's a major broadcast conglomerate in the United States called Clear Channel, and they own thousands of properties. Most of them are rock and roll and pop, and you know. Um, then I began to to see broadcasters in the wild, and you know, then I saw the booze and the the weed and the the f bombs were flying, and I was being baptized into a a the the real world but my time in christian radio i mean i've seen my my share of hypocrisy i've seen a little bit of it among the artists themselves i think most of them are good people i mean there are some people who are tragic and awful hypocritical people who have just discovered that they can in my opinion that they couldn't make it in pop music so they're they're doing christian music instead uh, it's probably like anything else you see the best and the worst Okay, so in your KXOJ days then, um, Seth, are we talking like all the music was Christian music or did you pepper it in gently? Was no. there a Christian sandwich amongst the normal stuff? No, it, it, we, uh, we were 24 hours a day playing nonstop religious music, Christian, we call it CCM, contemporary Christian music, Amy Grant, Stephen Curtis Japan, Michael W. Smith, etc. We even had a prayer time on the radio for the first few years. At, uh, like, it was late at night. We'd stop the music and we had prayer requests and the DJ would go on the air. Dear Lord, we ask that you be with Bob, whose mom's in the hospital tonight. We pray for your healing mercy. We did that kind of thing. We had preachers that were on the radio on Saturday mornings. They'd come on and they'd blather on for a half an hour slot. The first 20 minutes they were preaching. The last 10 minutes they were begging for money because, you know, of course, God can't send them the money. They have to go on the radio and beg for it. And it was an interesting phenomenon that in the mid-90s, we realized that to get more listeners, we had to do Jesus less. So we radio announcers were instructed. We never said the word Jesus, God, faith. We didn't pray. We took prayer off. We, we took all the preachers off. We acted just like non-Christian radio, except for the songs that we played. We changed the positioning statement of the radio station. So we were no longer excited over Jesus, XOJ. We were your choice for the family. You know, 
we're wholesome, we're safe for you and the kids. It was this nebulous sort of way to try to bring people in who normally wouldn't give Christian radio a chance. We emulated what was happening in pop radio so that they might stumble upon us, like what they hear, and stick around. And that largely continues today. Most of the radio stations in this country that are Christian, contemporary Christian, they don't say Christian radio. They say something like positive hits and family mm. radio. It's it's a marketing move. For sure, yeah. I mean, as part of my research for tonight, I did find a random CCM playlist on Spotify and fired it away. And I listened intently for our first couple of songs and I thought, oh my God, that's awful. Because <laughs> it is. But I let it play while I was doing some other work. And like, as background music is concerned, it is. It's exactly the same as any other radio station. It's uh, sneaking it in very discreetly, you know. But don't worry, though. It's, like it's my, my wife's Spotify account, so I've not ruined any, <laughs> any profiles. That's fine. <laughs> I do remember. See, I, I'm, I'm a, I was a metalhead, Steph, and the, uh, Seth. The, the, the Satanic Panic was brilliant in the 80s for us. Lots of good music came out. We okay. got the records with the warning sticker on them. That made you want to buy them even more, which was great. Um, so yeah, uh, good times. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, let's let's uh, pivot on a little bit um, as we wind our way on and talk maybe a little bit about present times. So, um, Seth, uh, COVID nineteen. Um, let's see what kind of impact uh, have Fox News Christians had, and uh, I guess your president had uh, by de- by uh, bleeding through on on how your country's dealt with the whole crisis. Well, I've been tempted, my friend, to beg your listeners for asylum because it's pandemonium in the United States. I have never in my life, I never thought we would be at a point where we are now with COVID-19. I, I'm, there's so many gears in that machine. We struggle in this country with an anti-science sentiment. Um, you know, and Fox News is partially the reason the churches and the religious culture, magical thinking, partially the reason, because it's primed to distrust science and scientists. The most popular radio host in the United States, Rush Limbaugh, he has called science one of the four corners of deceit. The thinking is, is that these, apparently, there's an Illuminati-esque star chamber of scientists who have all come together in an effort to kill God. And if you have this culture, then, who is primed to say that, you know, well, science is all agenda-driven and it's all part of this, it's Satanistic in some way, um, then it affects everything, including COVID-19. And uh, so we have people who are brazenly and blatantly putting other people at risk, not doing the basic, the the minimum, the lack of empathy among my fellow Americans is terrifying. I would think a mask, a mask and a six foot distance would be common sense, but they're taking their cue in an authoritarian model from a president who is throwing basic precautions out the door gleefully and uh, they are following his lead. 
it is a, a bizarre, it's a tragic, it's a very alarming time with the election coming up. I don't know what our future holds. Um, one thing about it, though, is is that I I see these crises as kind of a black light that has revealed many of the, the problems that we face in this country. These crises, this presidency, the, the Fox News culture, if it has any utility, it has been useful in revealing problems that have been there for a long time and are now coming to a head. Another silver lining there. Okay, I need yeah. to backtrack a bit. So if science is one of the four cornerstones of deceit, what are the other three? Is it like history, geography, math? Or? God, I'm trying to remember uh, what the other three are. I have the memory of a goldfish. Just Google Rush Limbaugh, four corners of deceit. They're actually still listed on his website at rushlimbaugh.com. I'm drawing a blank. but it, he Thanks has, for advertising his website, though. I mean, that's, well, whatever. He doesn't, he doesn't care. But, you know, this is the same guy who has he's on record saying that, you know, smoking, there's no evidence smoking causes cancer. And of course, now he's got advanced lung cancer, which will likely kill him in the next several months. Who knows? He believes that climate change is totally bogus. And he, uh, you know, he he encourages people to take his word for it. And, uh, you know, I, I think if you if you have a culture that embraces this notion that all things are happening for a reason and that, that there is a puppet master up there who has a plan with a capital P, then there's not a lot of, um, the onus is not really on us to take too much responsibility. I, I've heard people talk about taking care of the environment. Well, they're Christian dominionists. They say, well, you know, the earth is our resource. Everything belongs to us. God gave it to us. We get to use it up. Jesus is going to be returning in the next several decades anyway, and he's going to sweep up. Uh, so why should I have to worry about it? And, uh, you know, I think this anti-science sentiment, it, it's damaging on almost every level. Uh, the only good news is that we are seeing a slow decrease in religiosity in this country uh, 26% of Americans right now say that they are not religious. It doesn't mean they don't hold a God belief of some flavor, but they, they're on, they're not involved in religion. They don't think religiously. Uh, so I mean, perhaps in the decades ahead, we'll see that start to gain some traction. Fingers crossed. Okay, we're winding our way towards the end of our time uh, to start with, but a couple of things to go first. Uh, it's Halloween soon, Seth. Uh, you've always had something special on for the scary season. Have you got anything planned for this year, or has 2020 been horrific enough that you don't need to borrow? Oh, no, I think we need a distraction. I think I I, I needed the, dis the uh, distraction. I, uh, I'm releasing Ghost Stories, the podcast, in just a few days, and I have produced as the finale something unlike I ever attempted before. I don't think I'm giving away too much when I say that lately I've been fascinated by these conversations between airline pilots and air traffic controllers to hear their radio conversations as something goes wrong in the sky and they have to be guided in. And something about that I found fascinating. And so I was on YouTube listening to all of these air traffic conversations with airline pilots, you know, an engine blows or, or they've got, you know, someone has a medical emergency or something else and how they deal with it. 
and I have formulated a high-impact 20-minute finale to ghost stories that has that flavor. I spent, I must have spent too much money on voice actors because <laughs> I've got, I've probably got eight or nine professional voice actors that are all playing the parts. Uh, but I think, uh, I think it'll all pay off. It releases on October the 13th and you can find it uh, at the thinking atheist.com or on Spreaker. Nice. If you're ever looking for a sort of whiny, insipid Scotsman voice actor, you'll find my rates are are pretty good. Okay. I'll have my people contact your people. That I'll get sounds my people like onto Renner. Okay, so to finish things up, Seth, I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? Um, I've got a little quiz for you. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be delving into Brian's big bucket of bigots, okay, BB, the BBBOB, okay? <laughs> and you can play along on Twitch as well, folks, okay? So I'm going to pull a name out of my big bucket of bigots here. And I'm going to read you a couple of statements or a quote or a fact about that person. And I want you to tell me who that bigot is. If you get it right with the first one, two points. If I have to read the second one, you get one point. Are you ready, Seth? I'll give it a crack. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Bigot number one. Okay. Bucket uh, of bigots. <laughs> yeah, it's branded. We're going to work on it. It's going to be a whole thing. Um, so... <laughs> Statement number one, this woman is said to have been the inspiration for the Serena Joy character in The Handmaid's Tale. This woman, uh, Michelle Bachman. It is not Michelle Bachman, no. Okay, I'm going to move on to... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm looking for... Okay, yeah, never mind. is Is it the bigot or is it the person who inspired the story about overcoming bigots? It, it, it is the bigot. Okay, all right. Well, I, yeah, I'll stick with, I would have stuck with Michelle Bachman then. It is not Michelle Bachman, no. Okay. And for those that don't watch The Handmaid's Tale, Serena Joy, she wasn't one of the goodies, okay? Um, okay, statement number two. In the 1970s, she was a key campaigner against the Equal Rights Amendment. Phyllis Schlafly. It is Phyllis Schlafly. One point to Seth. Hopefully you guys did all right there. Yeah, so she is an American conservative activist and author. She held traditional conservative social and political views, opposed feminism, children's rights, gay rights, and abortion. She sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, let's go back into my big bucket of bigots. Oh, okay, right, this this is a fun guy. So this person appeared on CNN's Larry King Live on a panel discussion discussing sexual abuse of children by priests. He contended that the decades-old problem consisted mostly of offences involving post-pubescent boys aged 12 or more, which offences, therefore, according to him, should be considered acts of homosexual priests rather than the actions of pedophiles. Oh, God, was it... uh, I want to say Cardinal Pell, but I don't know why he would be on Larry King... Um, or Bill Donahue with a Catholic. Ding, 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 ding. I'm going to give you two points, Seth. It was Bill Donahue. Okay, yes. all right. All right. I, 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 I cheated. I gave you two answers. That's <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll, I'll let it go, okay? Well, Don, um, Bill yeah. Donahue is just a tragedy. Every time he opens his mouth, I, I feel brain cells exploding in my brain. Yeah, he seems like, uh, you know, and again, Brian's own special opinion, not that of skeptics in the pub online, an absolute thunder cunt of the highest order. If you guys want to picture like a sort of a bigot, uh, just picture what that looks like in your mind. Google it and you go, oh, that's the guy. That's him, right? Okay, 
we're going back into the the big bucket of bigots. I feel pressured. Like I, I'm nervous. Like so I don't get nervous is, on live broadcast, and I this feel is pressured. Like I'm on stuff. jeopardy. Oh, okay, right. Okay, next one. Here we go. Um, this person was alleged by Michael Cohen uh, to have endorsed Donald Trump in 2016 in order to stop pictures of uh, topless pictures of his wife from being released. Jerry Falwell Jr. Yes, two points. Seth, you're on fire. Absolutely. Um, he denied this, by the way, saying someone stole pictures I took of my wife in the backyard. Topless. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about Liberty University, Seth. Oh, my God. Well, Liberty University, the short version is, is that it was founded by a guy named Jerry Falwell, Back in the 1980s, Jerry Falwell was part of the Satanic Panic. He had founded an organization called the Moral Majority. And again, this is them saying that morality must come from the Bible and Christianity, pointing fingers at everybody and everything who was not Christian, saying it's satanic and it's part of the, the decline of Western civilization. And what was interesting about Jerry Falwell is that he was one of the first, he and Billy Graham and a few others, really dancing over the state church line, had access to presidents, government officials, policy. You know, it was really a political organization. And he, he founded a college, a, a Christian college, hugely conservative, called Liberty University. It's just this pod. Uh, it's a brainwashing cult is what it is. And uh, when uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. passed away, his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., took over, and the alarm bells immediately began to ring over his son because people were like, this guy's, I mean, Falwell Sr. may have been a true believer, but his son is a total hypocrite. He's using the college as a hedge fund to make money and give money to his friends. He's out partying all the time while he's telling everybody else to be celibate and chaste and chaste rather. And so uh, there were rumblings about Jerry Falwell Jr. for a long time until recently when this story about his wife having an affair with a pool boy as he was voyeuristically watching his whole. And but even then, when he left the university, when he stepped down. They gave him a golden parachute. I forget how many millions of dollars in payouts they gave him to step down. It's just a tragedy, you know. Well, that that was going to be my bonus question. Yeah, it was $10.5 million his payoff's going to be. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with your wife banging the pool boy, but as long as you're not teaching, uh, you know, no kite shaming here at Skeptics in the pub online. But if you're preaching purity and doing that, then it's bad. Okay, Um Time's got the better of us, Seth. We're going to have to step away from Brian's big bucket of bigots. Maybe we can come back to it later on, but we're going to take a short break now. So, Seth, thank you so much for being so frank with us. We appreciate it. Uh, folks, um, we're going to take a short break now. You can put your questions. I'm sure our mods are putting the, the link to ask your questions into Twitch right now. We will peruse them during the break, come back after the break, and, uh, and we'll cover them then. In the meantime, Seth, thank you so much. It's an honor. Thank you. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Hopefully you have 
fed and watered your cells appropriately. Um, welcome back to Seth Andrews. Seth, welcome back. Good to be here. Thank you. Are you ready to be probed by our audience? I am bracing myself, but hoping for the best. It's <laughs> the best way to do it. Okay, so question number one coming from the Cornish Exile. Good name. Do you think the US education system continues to perpetrate this issue? How can younger people be supported in developing their thinking in the US? I'm, I'm wondering which issue is uh, being discussed here. Yeah, I, well, I'm I'm going to make a general guess that it's the um, anti-science um, sentiment that you talked about with the, the sort of Fox News watchers. Yeah, I, th there may be... There may be some of that, but I'm not convinced that I mean, we're seeing a lowering of standards in our public school systems. But I, I am more convinced that the problems originate in the home environments, the church environments, the cultural environments that inform these young people before they go to school. We also have a prevalence of private religious schools that are information bubbles, indoctrination camps where true science is not actually taught. And these are protected institutions that are allowed to operate pretty much out of sight without much in the way of accountability. And uh, uh, so we have, I think, a lot of issues that are contributing to a collective distrust of science and sort of a conspiracy, even a, a superstitious thinking in this country. So can the Internet save us then, Seth? I, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask during, during your talk, like historically, you know, the, the huge audience size that Fox News has or Fox Station has, you know, uh, I, I know obviously Facebook and YouTube and, you know, can can funnel, you know, the worst of content in your direction, but it's not always a constant stream and there's dissenting voices. Do we have any hope that, you know, people are going to turn off their televisions and at least consume something a bit more variable on the internet? Well, I think we've seen a little bit of this in fundamentalist churches. A pastor makes a claim. We now live in an era where, you know, somebody can grab their phone and do a quick search and begin to see differing points of view and, and if they're interested enough, can find credible sources of actual data. I also would like to think, despite the misinformation and conspiracy theories, and they are a plenty, I would like to think that the information age has made us slightly more aware of uh, how to fact check. We know misinformation is everywhere. And so I think in some instances, we have learned or are learning to become more diligent to make sure that our sources are good, that those sources are checked by other sources. It's an imperfect system. You'll probably always see two sides to that coin. You'll see the conspiracies that catch fire and go crazy. And then you will see the debunkers of conspiracies that catch fire and go crazy. And I, I have a feeling these two cultures will continue to war against each other. But the information will be there for those who care enough to look. Fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll find more about conspiracy theories next week when we talk QAnon. Okay, yeah. next question. Um, how do American Christians cope with the cognitive dissonance of their faith and Trump's personal behavior? 
Ah, how does a, a person who believes in the best teachings of Jesus Christ embrace someone who is the antithesis of the best teachings of Christ? This is a conversation we have in the United States all the time. What did Jesus preach? Well, you know, be charitable, love your neighbor. You know, Jesus hung out with the lepers and the prostitutes. He said, don't be vengeful. He said, turn the other cheek, give to well, the poor. At least poor. they've got something in common then, yeah. Right. I, I think, how do you do this? And largely, what I hear is, well, the Lord sometimes uses bad people to do good things. What I think this is, I think it's a couple of things. First of all, we live in an, a country where evangelical Republicans have been brainwashed to believe that the Democratic Party is a satanic party. They abort babies in the womb, so they kill babies. They're murderers. They uh, support LGBT rights, and homosexuality is a sin in the Bible. They don't believe we are an ordained nation that belongs to God, and we are more xenophilic. We embrace other nations and cultures as our brothers and sisters, the human condition. You know, uh, and so they see it as, well, no matter how terrible Donald Trump is, at least he's not a, a Democrat. And by that measuring stick, he can say anything, he can do anything, and they've already decided in their brain that as long as he's there, you know, their asshole, <laughs> right? He's an asshole, but at least he's our asshole. As long as that's the case, they will stand behind him. I also see the tendency to gravitate toward authoritarians and savior figures, which is primed by religion. For sure. A cult of personality is still a cult. So if someone comes forward, as Donald Trump has, and he holds his arms out and says, I alone can fix it, he calls himself the chosen one. This is attractive language to people who have already been primed to believe in prophets and savior figures. And I think those, uh, those are just a couple of the main uh, ways that supposedly moral people justify the support of an immoral man. For sure. Okay, Seth, so four years ago in Glasgow, we had Noah Heath Eli from Scathing Atheist, Tom and Cecil from Cognitive Dissonance in Glasgow, and I asked them, Hillary or Trump, who's going to win? Their prediction was not a good one, okay? I'm going to put you on the spot. Is Biden going to take it over Trump? I think, I think Trump is going to lose on November the 3rd, unless Biden commits a major gaffe. But... I am genuinely frightened that there is going to be a, a violent response. And the reason is, is there are cultures primed by conspiracy thinking, the language of incitement that has come out of Donald Trump's mouth. They believe that the election will only be valid if he wins. If he loses, it's a conspiracy. It's a coup. It's illegitimate. And they then, I worry, will find in their minds they're going to think it's their patriotic duty to rise up bearing their weapons to protect the legitimate leader that they have rallied behind. And I am frightened that we are going to see 
harm. We're going to see damage. We're going to see the buildings on fire. We're going to see the loss of life. I, I hope that's not, I hope I'm not, that I'm not just overreacting, but we, you know, we just saw a news story in my country that there was a militia planning to kidnap the governor of Michigan because they believed that she was an illegitimate leader or something along those. They have come up with some conspiracy narrative and they were plotting to kidnap her and remove her from office. These people exist. And, you know, it doesn't take very many of them to cause absolute chaos. And Donald Trump, I think, revels in chaos. He speaks in the language of escalation and incitement. So while I do think that he'll lose in terms of numbers, I am very nervous that we are going to see an uprising of violent supporters. And I'm concerned about what they may do in the months and even the year ahead. Yeah, I think it's varying degrees of lose in that situation, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting, like, you know, for all the conservatives at the moment who are criticizing Black Lives Matters protesters for being out on the streets protesting, I wonder, I wonder how they're going to um, circle that square to, to, to go and do the same themselves. So we, well, yeah. we'll see. Hopefully not. Okay, let's move on. Um, question from Vic Is there anything from your life as a Christian that has any value for you today? Well, all of the best stuff from my Christian days, I don't need to believe in Christ to do. My Christianity, the best parts of it were great. I had love and community involvement, and we did charitable work, and I actually took trips to other nations to do charitable work and um, to love, love your neighbor, to do things that are good to enjoy communal music and all those types of things. But those are human things. They're not religious things. And uh, I, I'm interested that the church likes to stamp its brand of ownership on all of these things and say, well, you know, this is a Christian deed. This is a Christian exercise. But the truth is the best parts of my Christianity were humanism. And I can do them without a belief in Jesus or God or superstition. Yeah, great answer. Okay. Um, anonymous question now. Um, how do we successfully de-radicalize people stuck in the bubble, especially in the internet age when these pockets of extremism are easily accessible? So the question essentially is, how do we fix the world? <laughs> yeah, come on, Seth. You've not done much so far. Can you fix the world, please? <laughs> I struggle with this. There are, uh, we are not going to shout people into better ideas. Uh, I'm convinced that we're not going to insult the opposition. But I, I'm also aware that people who have closed the doors of reason, they are sending, they are not receiving, they are not listening. They have to, we have to push through them. And we have to overcome them in the arena of ideas. We have to defeat their hate with better ideas. I don't know that it's possible in many cases to change their minds. They're going to have to come to a point where they are willing to listen and be honest with themselves. Back to conversation. I'll try to make this short. I do think that even extremists 
often can be reached. An example is a Muslim documentary filmmaker named Dia Khan. She, instead of going to a white supremacist rally and throwing bottles at them and screaming at them that they're all bigots, she asked if she might sit in their living rooms with a camera and talk. And she sat down five feet from a white supremacist and she, a Muslim woman, asked them pointed questions compassionately, strongly, but as a human being. And they had dialogue. And what happened was, is the white supremacist began to see her not as the other, but as a fellow human being. And after that conversation, when the, uh, by the time the documentary called White Right, it released a Netflix Several of those people contacted Dia Khan and said, after talking with you, I realized I could not hate you anymore. And they walked away from the white supremacist rally. And now they many of them operate organizations to help rescue others from hate organizations. So I think Dia Khan's example is the best one I've seen. You know, we have to humanize the issues, humanize each other. I don't think we're going to shout them down. I think we're going to have to humanize the situation and somehow engage in dialogue. It's an imperfect answer, but it's all I've got. Yeah, but it it, it does tie back to a little bit what we spoke about earlier on. Like that's a that's a dramatic intervention, Seth. You know, you know, arranging something like that, putting it in a documentary. You know, that's that's going to change change minds in a way that you know your mind was 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 changed by having some dramatic things happen in your life so that plus the gay agenda maybe we'll get there eventually yeah yeah okay the next question's a good one right um it's it's time traveling Seth again if you could go back and say one thing to your earlier self to get him to question his worldview what would it be well i think um i like the word question if I could go back, when I first came out of the faith, I was leading with statements when I would speak to believers. It'd be like, the Bible is not demonstrably true, and it's often demonstrably false, and this makes no sense. Noah's Ark is bogus and crazy. And, you know, I was speaking in these declarative sentences. Now, I ask questions. I like the idea, if I was to go back and I was to talk to my younger evangelical self, I like the idea of asking basic questions, not even the, the, the deep ones. I, I would probably start with who wrote the book of Genesis, right? This is the foundational book of the foundational book of an entire religion. Nobody knows where it came from. Would you accept that criteria for any other religion? Not knowing who wrote the Quran, not knowing who wrote any other holy book. You know, would you, Dr. John Loftus likes to call this the outsider test for faith. Am I applying the same rules to my own religion that I'm applying to others, the same criteria to other religions that I'm applying to others? And um, so I would probably start with the basics. You know, who wrote any of the books of the Bible? Where did they come from? If you don't know where they came from, how in the world could you know that they were true? And if someone was to ask you, a neutral observer, how would you demonstrate to them that it was true? I would probably start there at the basics. Okay. Follow-up question. Did young Seth Andrews have the evil goatee beard 
or not? Did you only no. grow that when you became okay? So surely young Seth Andrews would see bearded Seth Andrews and think <laughs> that's Seth Andrews from an evil universe. Don't trust him, right? You've I seen would be like that episode of Star Trek, yeah, with when yeah. Spock had the beard, and yeah, oh evil yeah, Spock, be, exactly. I assume that, that your beard just kind of came formed as soon as you stopped believing in God. It, it's it's uh, facial hair is of the devil, kind of. I knew it. Okay, next uh, question is an anonymous one. Do you think science and religion are mutually exclusive? Can they exist in harmony for those who choose to have faith and seek understanding through science? I think science and supernaturally based religions are incompatible. It's called faith because it's not knowledge. Christopher Hitchens famously said that. And theistic religions are, by their nature, faith-based. So I, I don't think that uh, a, the process of science and belief by faith in deities, etc., I don't think those can live in the same space. I have come to the point when I am beginning to see perhaps some utility in non-theistic religions because human beings like structures and we like um ritual and you know the satanic temple and secular jews etc they still have their traditions this sort of uh, window dressing for life but they don't these religions don't require that they embrace magical thinking they're simply expressing themselves through art and through music and ritual but they're rooting themselves uh, philosophically, logically, in the real world. Theistic religions, I don't think that they can exist. They still have to pass the burden of proof. That remains a scientific question that they simply have not answered. Okay. But, I mean, I, I guess, is is there a point, Seth, where if you know, somebody has faith and they're a believer, as long as that doesn't inform like cause them to make bad decisions in their life and they're still interested in science and, and what have you can 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 they live next to each other in that respect well you know i think francis collins a famous scientist who is behind the human genome project is an example of someone he holds to the fact of evolution he's still a christian a professing christian but he's pro science no one would say he's not a thinker or an intelligent smart even wonderful man. I, I have every confidence that he is. Um, but I think, does he require his religion to be able to do the good things that he does? And I see religion as a distraction for him. Also, I'm a little concerned that so often, because ideas inform our actions, that you know, it's a little bit utopian to think that, well, you can believe in magical things and it doesn't impact the rest of your life. How you raise your children, how you vote, your politicians, are they rooted in the real world? Are they pro-science? Are they followers of the evidence? What are your views about your city, state, country, world? Uh, how is that filtered through sort of a religious machine? You know, ideas often inform actions. I just remain convinced that we would be better 
I think we can have a religious exercise, perhaps. We can do a lot of the things structurally that religions do, but I, I think the pursuit of truth is the most important thing beyond you know, the embracing of any one religion. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, let's go. Next question. Paul, a.k.a. Picticule. Hmm. Okay, Picticule. How much do you think Fox News is leading public opinion as opposed to merely reflecting the latest dubious pronouncement from President Trump? Uh, it's a great question. I address this in the book. I think Fox News is feeding on and feeding into the culture at the same time. We're witnessing a feedback loop. It reinforces the culture, which says that we are a Christian nation and we're under persecution by those evil satanic Democrats and Trump was appointed by God, etc. Those people then become more allegiant to Fox News. They propagate those ideas in the culture, which then prompts Fox News to have the highest ratings in the United States for any news network by far. They continue that business model and they feed it back into the culture, which feeds it back into the ratings. And the whole time you've got President Donald Trump glued to Fox News. Fox and Friends, Sean Hannity, Lou Dobbs, Tucker Carlson, etc. And now he is reinforced and reinforcing, right? He does his interviews with them. They get their accused from Trump. Trump hears Lou Dobbs say something that he likes. That informs Donald Trump's opinion. It's a feedback loop. It uh, constantly sort of chews on itself. Well, that was a depressing answer. Thanks Sorry about that. That's all I got. <laughs> okay, the next question from the devilishly <laughs> handsome Andy Wilson. Does Seth have any examples of Fox News people who have become self-aware that they're not sentient robots, Andy, who have become self-aware but keep going for the money? Or to what extent is that the case? I, I can't speak to intent. Uh, I certainly have some of my suspicions. But having been someone who genuinely believed a lot of the stuff that was coming out of Fox, uh, I think there's a high likelihood that maybe they've talked themselves into it. Maybe their religions have caused them to dance between the raindrops. So, I mean, it's possible that there are some people who are corrupt, but I wouldn't know which ones there are. I couldn't pick them out. Well, you did, you did mention in your book, I mean, obviously we, we've got characters like Roger Ailes who um, – you know, is, is you know essentially running the Fox News business, but you know from what I understand, his behavior was very unchristian. Am I correct? Well, you know, this is the man who was uh, involved in the uh, sexual harassment lawsuit with Gretchen Carlson, etc. But if you go back into his early involvement with the Nixon administration and the Republican Party in the United States. He struck me as a guy who was a true believer in American evangelical conservatism. Now, it may have been a very perverse version of it, but, you know, he is he tried for decades to be part of a right wing message machine. And it's very possible he was driven by real conviction. And uh, but his, his own life may have been a, a hypocritical, even a predatory one on top of that. Okay, that's a very charitable answer, Seth. Thank you for that. Oh, I um, got. Okay, question from David. Do you think that there's a liberal 
liberals in quote marks, liberal equivalent to the conservative Fox News, or is it by definition a right wing phenomenon? No, I, I there are liberal media outlets, um, sometimes strategically. MSNBC is an American network that is uh, notoriously uh, left. Uh, there are publications like Alternet, Mother Jones, um, etc. They are very left, but none of those outlets has remotely the reach, the popularity, the ratings, or the income of Fox News. In that regard, Fox News is unique and stands on its own. So what you're saying is the liberals just need to try a bit harder, right? I think sometimes they will – MSNBC is obviously a targeted attempt to counter, to be, you know, to, to be the refutation to Fox News. But they're not a high-rated network. They're not a heavily watched network. Um, and there's no doubt that we as human beings are all capable and guilty of bias. Reporters, members of the media, no exception. We're all susceptible to bias. I will say that the Trump administration in the United States has successfully sold this myth that every member of the media who is not Fox News or who does not agree with Donald Trump is part of a conspiracy of agenda-driven zealots trying to bring him down. And I think that's just bizarre. I mean, the idea that every journalist, every reporter, every investigator, everywhere on every network, whether it be television or radio or print, et cetera, they're all in league with each other to bring him down. Isn't it possible that some people are out there who are advocates for a free press trying to genuinely find the truth? I think those people exist. They've been vilified, but they exist. For sure. Okay, next question from Gray, the color. Um, you said after your friend came out, you realized you were the problem. What thought process led you to that newfound conclusion? Well, it took you a year, right? <laughs> but Well, it, it took me a year to accept Corey when he announced that he was gay. And I didn't see myself at that, at that second as the problem. I saw it as more of, well, I'm going to open my tent even though I'm grieved by his sexual identity kind of a thing. But when I began to see that non-heterosexuality is so common throughout nature, hundreds of species, you know, expressing themselves. And when I saw that so much of this was just laced in judgment, telling other people who they are and what they can and can't do. And uh, then I realized I was, I, I, I use the word bigot. I, I realized I'm a, I'm a bigot. I, I am, who cares? He's still the same beautiful person I've always known. And I realized that he hadn't changed. He wasn't the problem. I was the problem. But, you know, it, it took a little bit of time to get to that realization and to frame it that way. For sure. So what does Corey mind you speaking about him? And uh, With permission, I, I, I actually spoke about him first a few years ago in a speech that's on YouTube. It's called The Mystery Letter. And then I, I called and I asked him, I said, look, I'm, I'd like to write a chapter about this moment in our lives for the new book, but I, I don't want to touch it unless you're totally comfortable. And he was like, please tell my story. And what was fun was when Confessions was, was released in hardcover, 
I was able to go and sign that chapter and then send it to him. So he's got a copy with his own story in his house. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's nice. He sounds yep. like a dead. Way to go. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, question from Anonymous. After you came out, how were your close relationships affected? I lost a few friends. Not, uh, you know, people are in this country. I don't know about where you are, but if you say the word atheist here, among many people, you are radioactive. I mean, there are genuine fears. You'll lose your job, that you'll be disowned. I get messages from people. They're cast off by their families. I had one student in college. His parents said that unless he renounced his atheism, they would cut off his college funding. So they're not only holding him emotionally hostage, but financially hostage. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I saw some people sort of fade out, disappear. My mother and father, it has cost us most of our relationship because they hold a tough love approach. They believe nothing else can really be enjoyed unless the eternal question is answered. And there have been so many words, so many letters, so many texts, so many phone calls over the course of the last 13 years, so much toxicity that uh, we don't speak much at all. Oops, there's my dog. So I don't, uh, I don't, he is six pounds of uh, ankle high death and he will rain down upon you. Hey buddy. Okay. No, he went downstairs. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I just got very disappointed there, Seth. What? The crowd just got very disappointed there. We're still going to have some dog action. Right when you were talking about. You ran out the door and down the stairs. Apparently the neighbor's kids are. He ran out the door. Otherwise, I would have held him up and shown everybody. Sorry about that. Now, yeah, anyway, I've, yeah, I've lost some relationships, but I, I've decided that, you know, family acts like family. And I've been honored and privileged to have uh, family like in this community from all over the world, you know. Good answer. Good recovery. I want to know, Seth, what about your not so close friends, right? Or what about your neighbors, right? You live in Oklahoma, right? Do your neighbors know, like, there's the weird atheist guy from down the street? Does your local shop kind of, you know, go all quiet when you walk in? Anything like that? Um, I've got a I've got a guy who moved in a couple of years ago right next door to me. He is the worship pastor at a major church in my town. And he and I are great. I mean, he he actually has listened to my show, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about it. He's unwavering, like he's not doubting or questioning at all. Uh, but he sees me as a person first. I see him as a person first. And uh, it's been absolutely great. So, uh, you know, the casual acquaintance, there, there have been a few others. I think I get the sense that, you know, they're a little nervous. We'll, we play tennis. And when it finally comes out, hey, Seth, what do you do for a living? You'll find some people who are raising an eyebrow. But I haven't noticed any major kind. Who knows what they whisper about me behind my back. But it hasn't been egregious. There's no, like, tennis arguments or anything. Like, you call something out, and he's like, fuck, was it, atheist boy? No. No, I haven't had any of that. I've been fortunate so far. Well, long may that continue. That's nice to hear. Okay, uh, next question from the Cellar Keeper. Sorry if this gets answered in the talk, but just in case, which were you first, an ex-Christian or an ex-Fox News? Ex-Christian. Did they happen simultaneously no, I, I had to i had to release my religious views and then 
I was at a point where I was no longer filtering all of my values through Christianity, right? So I'm thinking, well, what do I, now what do I think about all this stuff? So I had to go back and think about guns. How do I feel about that? How do I feel about abortion? How do I feel about the death penalty? How do I feel about right to die issues? How do I feel about gay marriage? How do I feel about immigration and other nations? I had to go and reevaluate. And once you've taken off your God glasses and you start to look at them differently outside of the bubble, that's when I realized that a lot of this Fox News conservatism had been tethered to superstition and religious thinking. But the religion had to go first and then the Fox News Christianity and the Fox News sort of culture that waned shortly after. Did they fall down like dominoes or did some yeah. of them hang around a bit longer? Yeah. You, you, so well, you're not still like, oh, guns, pew, pew. None of that. I mean, no. you know, I, like I, I still own a couple of firearms. I have a couple of uh, pistols. They're licensed firearms. I'm trained to use them. Uh, I keep them securely locked in a gun safe. I target shoot. But there is a culture in, in the United States that links guns to freedom and our national identity. And I am not that guy. Like if there was a national recall of guns like they did in Australia, I I would be right there. I'd be like, here, knock yourself out, take them. I'm not married to them. I don't I don't attach my sense of liberty and freedom to them at all. Uh, I think there's no reason that we should have semi-automatic weapons in the hands of civilians. This military-grade arsenal is just crazy. I, I've I've stood apart from that. I probably the one that took me the longest to come to terms with would be the abortion argument because I had for so long believed that at the moment of conception, a human soul was created like a tiny person. And it took me a while before I was able to get into conversations, education about the reproductive process and what this cluster of cells actually does. What is a fetus and what are the stages of pregnancy and what, when are most abortions done and what are the circumstances? And that took me a lot, several years to to come to the point when I was more comfortable with abortion. And I wrote a chapter about it in Confessions to sort of continue that journey. Yeah, it, it does go into a fair amount of detail. And, you know, I guess deconstructing that or putting t- putting together all of the facts or the factors that, that, that influence that decision, because it's never going to be an easy subject. Um, and and I, unlike, un, you know, we just had the vice presidential debate in the United States. Our vice president was again spinning the same story that Donald Trump has been spinning that, you know, Democrats want to be able to essentially destroy babies in the womb seconds before delivery in the operating. And, you know, this is just so crazy. Uh, the people I know who are pro-choice are pro-life. They are, they are thoughtful, nuanced conversations about female bodily autonomy and about when life begins, and they genuinely do want to protect life. And so this idea that we're all sort of mustache-twirling baby killers, that's an, an othering of the pro-choice crowd that is played very well among evangelical conservatives, but it's not tethered to the truth. You do work on the mustache, though. That would be a good look. Though. Yeah, yeah, I can do Okay. That. Next question from Anonymous. Do you think that Trump has any religious values? Or is it all about the politics? I don't think Donald Trump knows his base is largely biblically illiterate conservative Christians in the United States. So when he tear gasses a can uh, a, a um, 
Crowder protesters so he can stand in front of a church he does not attend to hold up a Bible that he does not own, he knows that is going to play well. I would pay, and I'll say this for the record, a thousand dollars of my own money to sit down with Donald Trump and give him a five-minute quiz on the basic tenets of Christianity. And I guarantee the man would totally fail. He does not read. He does not know his history. He knows nothing about it. He cares nothing about Christianity. I'm convinced he mocks religious people behind their back. He thinks they're stupid. And in many cases, they've been, apparently been stupid enough to believe that he is some sort of a Bible warrior. But I don't think he's religious at all. I don't think so. If you ever get agreement for that quiz, you're welcome to borrow Brian's big <laughs> bigots, so okay? Okay, um, next question from Andrew. How are we for time? We can do a few more. Can, we, can you hang with us for a little I'm bit good. longer, I'm Seth? I'm good. I'm enjoying myself. I hope everybody's enjoying themselves. Thanks for letting me stick around. Sweet. Thank you. Okay, so Andrew says, what is your advice for helping family or friends consider a way forward to rethink their fundamentalist Christian views? I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince the devout in my family. I used to. I used to instigate conversations. I, I had this naive opinion or this idea that, you know, if only I show the others what I've discovered. If I only show them the contradictions in the Bible and the problems and the history and the this and the that, you know, if only I bring it to light, then they will see what I have seen and we will join together and it will be song and music and confetti and glitter and we will all move into the, a reasonable future together. And that never happened. It just never happened. And um, so my tactic with those in my family is I simply make the journey more about me. I live a loud, proud life on my own terms in the hope that perhaps someone who is on my family tree might, if they ever come to a point of doubt in their own life and they're ready to ask the questions, that they will feel comfortable enough to be able to come to me and say, I've been struggling. And I've noticed that you have a differing opinion and I really want to talk about it. So I just, I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not on offense. I'm not scratching on their doors. I'm simply doing my life on my terms in the hopes that if they're ever at a critical mass in their own lives, that they'll know that I might be a resource for them. And that's the best I've got. For sure. Like your, your earlier videos say struck me as being very, um, slightly snarky, but you know, just pointing out those holes and such. Like, I think that that has an impact on some people, right? You must have had messages saying, like, I watched this; it 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 made me think, it changed my mind. Uh, is it not a valid approach in some cases? I do. Uh, yeah, you're right. Well, I, you know, the difference between the macro and the micro on the one on ones, I never use ridicule, insult, sarcasm, mockery ever. On the one-on-ones, I lead with questions and empathy and compassion and a listening ear. But on the larger stage, I think mockery has a place because the people are still in a position of safety. They're watching from the shadows and they see the sacred cow being roasted. 
And they don't feel personally attacked necessarily, but they see someone else attacking the idea. And because it's not personal directed at them, they might feel more inclined to say, whoa. I mean, I did the same thing when I saw Christopher Hitchens. He was he was torching religion, but he wasn't coming after me personally. I was just sort of watching as an observer. And uh, I thought, whoa, lightning didn't come out of the sky and strike that man. And he actually had a couple of really good points. And I was emboldened to go further. Mockery does have its place, but I never, ever use it in the one-on-ones. I think that's a good policy. I can see a question hovering not quite at the top. It says, were Brian and Seth separated at birth? Very funny. We we saw that during the break. Seth and I agreed that I'd be Leah and he'd be Luke, okay? <laughs> um, clearly, he got the testosterone. <laughs> okay, question from Doug. What is with the religious reverence for the Constitution as a document that cannot be questioned? Lived in Houston, was amazed not being able to question it. It is an interesting idea, isn't it? It's uh, almost a sacred text where it can never be looked at or evolved or, you know, challenged. There was a, which governor was it? I've forgotten uh, which one. But she came forward and said, our constitution will never be changed under my watch. You know, I'll fight that. And of course, someone had to remind her that it was, in fact, a change to the constitution a constitutional amendment that afforded her the right to vote and run for office in the first place. You know, it was a a constitutional amendment that freed the slaves, for Pete's sake. So uh, there is a reverence for the uh, the Constitution that I find near religious. There's also a reverence for the founding fathers of this country. Most people— They believed the lie that they were all devout Christians. They weren't, that they were all noble people. Not all were. Some were even slave owners, for Pete's sake. So they aren't saints. They're certainly not deities, but often they're treated as such. You know, they are sort of above reproach and criticism. But you have a a great point. You know, when did we stop questioning the the, uh, sort of foundational tenets of our society? Why can it not evolve as we evolve? It's it, it's a weird phenomenon, Seth, and we I don't think we've got anything equivalent here, you know. Um, and and the pledge of allegiance as well seems really bizarre. And you, know, you go into that in your book, and there was a really weird origin story to it as well, which you know did involve the raising of a hand at a rather unusual angle as well, right? Um, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that, that's all very troubling. It's uh, an interesting thing to ask people. You know, we, they teach their children at the youngest age the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. And so you ask a young child who is 10 years old, what's an allegiance? <laughs> I have no idea. What's a republic? To the republic for which it stands. What's a republic? I don't know. And I think it's an interesting um, sort of a revelation of this training and rote recitation it's not about understanding it's about loyalty my country right or wrong and i have come to this strange place where i i think the pledge of allegiance is a terrible idea if i pledge my allegiance i think it should be to the truth and 
basic decency and goodness and charity and the best of humanity. But to pledge allegiance to a country, that opens us up to being loyal even when our country is doing terrible things. And um, I think it's almost a religious exercise in this country. If you choose not to recite the pledge, in many cases, you're treated as a heretic. I don't think that's true freedom. They say it's freedom, but if you're required to do it or else, that's not anything our founding fathers would have uh, approved of or endorsed, I am convinced. For sure. Okay, uh, I think we're going to have to call it a night. Time's got the better of us. Um, Seth, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Um, you're welcome back any old time. Now, let me just get this right. The book's out now. It's Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian. You can go to sethandrews.com, thethinkingatheist.com. You've also got Patreon. That's right. It's patreon.com slash sethandrews. Am I correct? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All the pluggables. So, folks, please, in the text chat, um, show some love to Seth. Um, rounds of applause please virtually um, to keep him going for the rest of his long day over there in Oklahoma otherwise enjoy the rest of your night folks that was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast for more sceptical content including information about future talks please like us on Facebook Follow at SITP on Twitter or head to our website at sitp.online where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>